The Gemara Brachas tells us that Rabbi Yossi one time was walking on the road. Rabbi Yossi was a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva. He was the generation immediately after the Churban Bayas. This is the destruction of the Second Temple. Rabbi Yossi is still living in Yerushalayim, but Yerushalayim is a destroyed city. It was wiped out, it was exiled, and what was left of it was but a ruins of what it had been. Amar Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yossi says, Pamachas One time I was walking on the road, I went into a ruin. I went into a building that had been destroyed, one of the ruins of Yerushalayim. I was on the road, it was my only chance, I stopped there to Davin. And Eliyahu Hanovi came and waited for me at the opening. When I finished my tefillah, I walked out, and there I saw Eliyahu Hanovi, and Eliyahu Hanovi said to me, Shalom Alecha Rebbe. He gave me Shalom. Amartya Shalom Alecha Rebbe Amori. I said back to him, Shalom Alecha, my teacher, my master. Vamali Bini, he said, my son. Why did you go into this room? I said to him, Lispalal, I went into Davin. Leonovi then said to me, Bini, my son, Makol Shamata Bakurvazu, what voice, what sound did you hear in those runes? Martilo, I said to him, Shmati Baskol Shemnemes Kiyona Vomeris. I heard a heavenly voice. The Marsha explains when Hashem speaks, a human being would be too overcome. If a human being were to hear Hashem's voice directly, he would be destroyed, it would be just Overload, which is too much. Hashem bounces his voice, Kaviyachal, off of something that's a baskol, a echo of Hashem's voice. I heard Hashem's voice crying out like a Yonah, like a dove, Almeris, Oilabonim, woe to the sons. Shabbosayim, Echrafti is basi, because of the sins I destroyed my house. Srafti is Echali, I burnt my sanctuary, and I exiled them amongst the nations. Says Elion Novi to me, I swear to you, not only now is it that Hashem says that, but rather every single day, three times a day, that voice that you heard out crying, that sound of bitter wailing isn't, but this time it's daily, three times a day. But not just that, continues Elion Novi, when the Klaishal enter the shuls, then they enter the base medrash. And they answer, Yehesh Mei Rabba Mavorach. They say that part of Kaddish, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Manea Rosho, nods his head as if in agreement, and says, Ashrei HaMelech. Praise be the king, Shemakalsen Osoba Beisokach. Hashem says, look at the honor that's coming to the king. Praise to the king that they honor him such. Malo La'av Shigles Banov, woe to the father who had to exile his sons, va'oylem labonim, and woe to the children, shagalom al-shulchan who had to be exiled from the table of their father. And this is the Gemara. And this is the Gemara that we read to get a perspective on these days. And this is the Gemara that hopefully will help us understand a little bit more what Tisha B'Av is about and what it is that we should be mourning and missing. And I believe that on this Gemara, there are two questions. One question I'd like to ask is very, very simple to answer. The second question is very profound and very, very difficult to answer. The first question is, let's focus on this Gemara. Hashem is clearly, if it could be in Sar, 
He says, Oi, woe to my sons. And it's not just once. Leonovi says it's three times a day. Every day Hashem cries out, Woe to my sons who are exiled amongst the nations. Well, I have a very simple question. Excuse me, but aren't you God? Meaning to say Hashem is the creator and maintainer of all of physicality. There's nothing on this planet that occurs without Hashem keeping that object in existence, without Hashem directly involved in it. So if Hashem doesn't want something to happen, it will never happen. If Hashem didn't want the Crusades, it never would have occurred. If Hashem didn't want the Spanish Inquisition, or the blood libels, or pogroms, or the Holocaust, or the current <clears throat> stream of executions in the name of terrorism, it would not occur. So question number one is, aren't you HaKadosh Baruch Hu? Why are you crying? You don't have to cry. If it bothers you so, stop it. Say it shouldn't be. And that's question number one. And question number one isn't so difficult to answer. But question number one to answer requires a little bit of understanding of the way Hashem created the world and what Hashem gave over to man. The Mesutlah Shisharim in the first parak explains that when Hashem created Odom Arishon, He wasn't just the reason for creation, but rather He was the pivot point of everything in creation. Mesutlah Shisharim brings down the Medrash that HaKadosh Baruch Hu took Odom Arishon, and He took him for a tour of the Ilone Gan Eden. He brought him to all of the trees of Gan Eden, and Hashem said, look at the beauty, look at the fineness of this creation, how beautiful and how wonderful are my creations. Pay attention that you do not destroy my world. Explains when Hashem put Adam into this world, it wasn't just that He was the reason for creation, but rather Hashem gave the keys to my subracious to Adam. The world is dependent on you. If you use the world appropriately and properly, it will be elevated it will have fulfillment, it will continue to exist. If you abuse the world, if you misuse the world, it will be destroyed. The world itself, physicality, the existence of the cosmos and everything contained within it was based on Adam's use of it. And when Adam sinned, he was Makalke Libriya. He didn't just ruin himself, he ruined the entire creation. He changed the very nature of the world and he changed the very essence of everything there. But the Meshachachma in Chumash explains something very, very powerful. He explains that there is a nature to this world. When Hashem created the physical world, Hashem put into place very exact immutable laws. Heavy objects tend to fall. Gases tend to expand. Heat tends to rise. Those are laws that Hashem put into existence and with those laws, Hashem continues to run every facet of creation. As Ramban explains, nature is Hashem. When you see a seed that somehow takes root and grows into a mighty oak tree, you're watching Hashem. Nature are the laws that Hashem uses. Nature are the rules that Hashem continues to follow in an unbreakable pattern because that's the way Hashem wants the world to be. Almost never does Hashem veer off of the rules of nature because Hashem wants the world to go in a derech ateva. And as Hashem created laws for the physical world, Hashem created upper laws, world for the spirit, laws for the spiritual world, Hashem created a nature 
<coughs> for the Ruchnius of this world. And the Meshachachma explains that when you read the Psukim in the Tochacha, Hashem is warning the Kleistral, I put into place very exact, specific laws. Those are the laws of nature of the upper world. If you follow the ways of the Torah, you'll be an exalted and great nation. If you abuse those ways, Oivei and Oivei. And the Meshachachma gives a mushal. Imagine you have a fellow who is a little bit out of shape, as in he weighs 400 pounds, chain smokes, has an exercise in 20 years, and at the age of 41 he has a heart attack. And he says to the doctor, 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 why me, why me? The doctor is going to turn to the fellow and say, fellow, you eat the way you eat, you live a lifestyle the way you live a lifestyle, don't ask questions, that's what you should expect. Explains in Meshach Chachmah that when Hashem created the world, He put immutable laws of nature into this world. One of the systems of law is that the Jewish people have a particular place in this world. If we follow the Torah, we'll be an Amnovon Vachacham, exalted, mighty. And every nation will look to us and say, what a nation, what a great people. But if we don't follow the ways of the Torah, then built into the very fabric of the world is the fact that we'll be oppressed, we'll be scattered, we'll be oppressed, we'll be tortured. We are either the Am HaNivchar or the most abused, hated, tortured people in existence. But that's nature. It's not that Hashem thinks about it and decides, but rather built into the very fabric of creation is a certain reality. And if you'd like to know why Hashem cries, it's because if it could be, and if you could say such a thing, Hashem doesn't have control over that. Hashem created the world with laws of nature and wishes for those laws to remain. And therefore, when Hashem puts a Kelmanitsky into power, when Hashem puts a Hitler into power, it's because Hashem created certain laws. And if the Jewish nation aren't acting as they should, then Hashem is if to say, I can't do anything about it. This is the way the world will run. This is the way I set it up, and Hashem will run the world that way. Not because He makes a decision for such, but because long ago He created those laws. And if you wonder why it is that Hashem cries, it's because, again, on some level, if it could be, Hashem has no control. And when Hashem put Adam Arishon into Gan Eden, He gave man this power called free will. And free will is a pretty risky business. Because if man follows what he should do, if he listens to his neshama, the world is elevated and great. But if not, all bets are off. And when the Jewish nation veers off, what happens, happens. And if it could be, Hashem sits there daily crying, because if it could be, Hashem has no choice. And in that sense, I understand why Hashem is crying. But I have a different question, and that doesn't have a very easy answer at all. As a matter of fact, the second question is very, very difficult to answer. The second question is about us. Why aren't we crying? If Hashem cries three times a day, Oi to my children, how they suffer, woe to my children, what they're going through, how is it that we are the ones who are living through it and we don't cry? And I want you to understand how profound this question is. Every Shemona Esrei, six brachas, are dedicated to exactly this concept. Tekab is shofar gadol Hashem. When will that shofar blast finally come? And we ask Hashem over and over to build Yerushalayim. Etzemach David Avdecha, six brachas, three times a day. We ask Hashem, please end this exile. You can't open a siddur. You can't say a tefillah without a request from Hashem, from us to Hashem, to change it, to end the exile. Listen to the words in benching. By the way, you should know there's an interesting halacha. 
It's a loch in Shulchan Aruch that there's a minhag, that during the weekday, if there's a knife on the table, the knife used to cut the bread, you cover it. And the Beis Yosef brings two reasons for this halacha. The second reason he explains is because there was a man who was benching, and he got up to Uvenei Yerushalayim, Era Kodesh, Bimheri, Bimein Hashem, rebuild Yerushalayim. And he took the knife and he stabbed himself in the stomach. He was so distraught by the fact that Yerushalayim wasn't rebuilt, the fact that Yerushalayim was Bechurva, that he literally stabbed himself. And I want you to understand something. A minog in the Klayashol does not begin because some deranged person went postal. Chazal do not put into the Shulchan Aruch a minhog based on someone who lost his sanity. What the man experienced was appropriate and correct. His behavior was wrong. His reaction was incorrect. But that feeling, that argusha of utter woe was appropriate and proper. And the question is, what's with us? Why don't we cry? And if to put this into perspective, if it needs perspective, imagine that you're invited to a shiva house. And it's a very bitter shiva. A young woman dies, leaves a young husband and a bunch of kids. And you walk in and you see everyone in the shiva house distraught, crying, except the Avelim. The Avelim are laughing and joking, slapping each other on the back. Obviously, you'd have a question, what's going on? But that's what's happening here. Hashem cries and we don't cry. Chazal put into every tefillah <coughs> words about building Yerushalayim. So many men hug him from our talis that has black bars on it to breaking the glass and every simcha. And there are so many things that center around us remembering what we lost. And the question is, why don't we cry? And I hate to add the next level of question because the next level of question is a bit jaded. But the next level of the question is, who needs Mashiach? We got it pretty good. Freedom, opportunity. I've not been punched since I'm 10 years old for being a Jew. I haven't been called a dirty Jew in 30 years now. We have freedom, opportunity, yeshivas, shuls. Who needs Mashiach? Listen, I understand for centuries Jews were killed and Jews were murdered. We're doing pretty well now. And if you tell me ISIS and Iran, far removed. We don't suffer it. Who needs Mashiach? And I'd like to see if, in fact, we can answer this question, why it is that we don't feel what we should feel, and why it is that we do need Mashiach in a very real way. And to do that, we need to revisit Adam Arishan, and to revisit what Hashem intended for man on this planet. The Derech Hashem explains that when Hashem created Adam Arishan, it was in a very different state than you and I are in now. When Hashem put Adam into Gan Eden, it was in a state where he could reach utter perfection in a very short amount of time. You see, Adam's personality was malleable. He was plastic. He could literally change the essence of him at will. If he felt there was a tad too much arrogance, he could literally just make a decision and change that Nefesh Bahami within him. If he felt there was too much anger, he would just make a conscious decision and it would be gone. When Adam ate from the eight sadas, what he did was he changed the very nature of himself and the world in which he lived. What he did was he ingested to within him the nefesh Bahami. You see, until that point, man was pure neshama within a guf, but the body had very little sway, very little control over him. Man was in a state where he could be 
outside, removed from desire. If you think about it, Adam and Chava ran around without clothing. Do you know why it is that they didn't need clothing? As the Sfurno explains, it was so pure that everything they did <clears throat> was a mitzvah. Like, I eat, <clears throat> I drink. That's how they engaged in all activities. There was no desire that clouded their thinking, <clears throat> no drives that blocked them from being holy. They were in a very different state. When Adam ate from the Eitz Adas, he changed the very essence of his existence. And if you like a mushal <clears throat> to what he did, I have a very significant muscle. When my son was maybe seven or eight years old, he said to me, Abba, I have a great muscle. I got this great muscle. I said, what is it? He said, well, I was reading the Animorphs book. Animorphs is a science fiction series. And I was reading about the yurks. Yurks are these slugs. They get into your ear, and the slug takes over your brain. So you want to go left, but the slug says, "Uh uh-uh, we're going right. And you go right. You want to go forward, but the slug says, uh-uh, we're going backwards, and you go backwards. Whatever you want to do, you can't do because the slug takes over. Says my son to me, Abba, isn't that a great muscle to the Yetzirah? You want to do this, but the Yetzirah says no. It's just like the yerk that takes over. Now, he was a little guy, so I didn't want to tell him it at the time, but that is a terrible muscle. Why? Because when you are consumed by desire, it's not that you don't want to but something drives you when you're on that site that you shouldn't be on and you know you shouldn't be on. In that moment, you are there. You desire it. You want it. You are consumed But the essence of you. It's not part of you says, no, I don't want it. Maybe deep down, your neshama is crying. But right now, as you are, you're completely consumed, completely there. You wish for it. You want it. You are right there. What Adam did was he changed the essence of reality. No longer is it something that he can remain dispassionate from, that his desires were outside of him and he could just merely control. I now am betwixt and between. The I who am speaking to you am made up of an ashama that's so pure and holy and a nefesh Bahami, an animal soul that is completely base appetites and desires. But both are functioning. I made up of two competing drives, but both are there within me. In one moment, I'm really, really holy, Kadosh. The next moment, I'm completely absorbed into desires and appetites. But you see, it's completing me. And both are two parts competing. Both are mixed in. What Adam did was he changed the very essence of himself. But there's another step. There's another change that Adam caused by eating from the Yitzhadas. And to understand that, we need to focus on another interesting reality. You ever have a moment when you're davening Shemana Esrei and you're really speaking to Hashem right there? Little me having conversation with the Creator of the heavens and the earth, speaking to Hashem right there. It's incredible. Until my mind wanders, and then three minutes later I take three steps back and I say, whoa, where am I? What happened? You ever feel the Kedush of a Shabbos, and then ten minutes later it's gone? You ever learn a halacha? You ever study the fact that there are 17 los assays and 14 assays associated with not speaking Lashon And then the minute the story comes to my lips, it's not even a half minute, it's out before I even think, what's the matter with me? I don't drive on Shabbos. I don't eat treif. I just learned that there are many los assays that I violate by speaking Lashon How do I do it? Do you ever ask yourself, what's pshat in me? And I'll explain to you what pshat in you is. You'd like to understand the very essence of yourself. 
you have to think about the following. Imagine a young yeshiva guy who gets drunk on his first Purim. This is the first Purim he decides to drink, and he gets really plastered. And we'll give him a name. He's 17 years of age. His name is Moshe, and it's the first Purim that he gets drunk. And he's out of the yeshiva building, and he's starting to dance. And he's dancing with the cars. And suddenly a friend of him says, Stop, what are you doing? I'm dancing. You're dancing in cars. I know, I'm playing with the cars. Yeah. Moshe, you're going to get hit by a car. I know, I get hit by a car. Smack, crack my back. Moshe, you're going to get hit by a car. Send you to the hospital. I know, crack, smack my back. I'll go to the hospital. And the doctor, the doctor put me back together. Moshe, you're going to get killed. No, the doctor put me back together, put pins in me, pins in my back when I go to the metal detector. Ding, ding, ding. Let's stop. What's going on here? He's <clears throat> clearly rational. You spoke to him. He responded. He said, I'll get hit. He realized, you know, crack his back. He realized the doctor have to put him back. He, he understands what's going on. So what's he doing? The answer is he's drunk. The ramifications don't hit him. The reality doesn't come to bear. Intellectually, on some level, he <clears throat> understands it. He doesn't feel it. He's not margish it. He's drunk. If you'd like to understand us, that is us. We are drunk living in a state of utter haze, living in a state of confusion, sometimes I can cut through the deep, dark haze and feel a Kodesh Baruch Hu's presence. Sometimes on a Yom Kippur, I can feel the Kedush of the Yom, but then it comes back fully, and I'm back in the haze. And if you'd like to understand the essence of you, that is what's going on. But I'd like you to understand that before the Chait, that was an Odom Arishon. Before the Chait, it was clarity. Adam Rishon saw Hashem as I see an object right in front of me. Adam Rishon had no haze, no drunkenness, total clarity of mind, no being overcome by desires. He was in a state where he could perfect himself and in that state of perfection live on for eternity. And that was Hashem's plan. When Adam sinned, he changed the very nature of creation and explains the Derech Hashem. At that point, Hashem had to introduce something called death. Death was not part of the master plan, and death was not part of the way Hashem intended for the world to be. Hashem was put, Hashem put Adam into Gan Eden, intending for him to live there for eternity, forever, reach perfection and enjoy it. But when Adam ate from the Eitz he so changed himself that no longer could the world continue. It explains the Hashem that now Adam cannot possibly perfect himself. The haze is too strong, and the drunkenness is too pervasive. It's too difficult to really perfect myself. And therefore Hashem had to introduce death. Why? Because only with an additional two stages can man now reach perfection. And explains the Derech Hashem, for that reason there are three stages in our existence. There's this world where we are now, in my body, fighting the fight called life. And then there's the second stage, where my body's put in the ground and I separate and I go to the Olam HaNeshamos. The Olam HaNeshamos is a holding pen where I exist without a body. But it's I, with all of my thoughts, all of my conscious realities, me, the same me who feels and right now tells my arms and legs to move. The body's put in the ground, I separate, and for a certain time period, I'm in the Olam HaNeshamos. In that period, I'm allowed to enjoy the proximity of Hashem. I'm allowed to reach certain understandings that I couldn't before. That stage lasts for a certain amount of time. And then there's a third stage called Tchiyas Amesim. And Tchiyas Amesim, resuscitation of the dead, resuscitation is where I'm put back into a body, a body much more akin to Odomarishan's body, a body that I can quickly perfect. 
and in that state of perfection live forever. But three stages now had to be introduced. This world, a separation stage, where I'm separate, and then and then being put back into a body, again, a body more like Odom Rishon's than my own. And in that new stage, that third stage, living on forever. But the Derech Hashem explains that each stage is now needed because Adam changed the world. But I want you to note the very important point here. There's this world, Olam Shamos, Tchiyas no mention of Mashiach. No mention of Mashiach in any of them. Where does Mashiach fit into this whole picture? And the Rambam in Hilchos Malachim and in Hilchos Tshuva is very clear. And he says, Mashiach coming changes nothing in the running of this world. There'll be no shinui in my sabaracious, olam kimin hago noeg, the world will continue to run as the world runs. You'll still go to work, you'll get a job, you'll still take a seed, put it in the ground, and up will sprout barley and wheat. The world will run as the world currently runs. The key distinction between now and Mashiach actually coming is molea aretz deya es Hashem. The entire world will know Hashem's presence. The entire world will see Hashem right there. The entire world will recognize Hashem as the Creator, but not just far off, in a very real way. As I recognize this object, the shtender is solid and strong. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to smash my head into the concrete to know it's going to hurt. Every human being will see Hashem right there with total clarity. And obviously everything changes. Obviously, I don't steal. First of all, Hashem's right here watching. But more than that, I know that Hashem gives out exactly what each person needs. There's no competition. There's no jealousy. There's no anxiety. What do you mean anxiety? Imagine I'm walking down the street accompanied by the U.S. Marine Corps. I wouldn't feel anxious. Hashem is right here, <clears throat> guiding me, protecting me, but not in a sort of hazy kind of, I don't really get it sort of way. Clearly, absolute clear idea. The main change between now and Mashiach coming is a recognition that Hashem is here. Physically, very little change. Granted, we'll all be in Eretz Yisrael. Granted, the base of Mikdash will be rebuilt. Malchus, base David, the Davidic kingdom will reign again. But the key distinction isn't that. Every Gentile will look at a Jew and say, Oh my goodness, you are the chosen people. You are God's people. They won't fight wars with Israel because, oh my goodness, you're the holy Amakodush. They'll worship us, wish to speak to us. <clears throat> they'll get off the sidewalk out of respect because they'll recognize Hashem, recognize a Jew as God's people, and the nature of the world changes very little, but the reality of man changes in a radical way. And if you'd like to understand what it's like, <clears throat> imagine Moshe, that drunk yeshiva bocher, wakes up the next morning and he gets out of bed and has a little bit of a hangover and his roommate says to Moshe, last night you were out in the street. What? Yeah, you were out in the street playing, I was playing with cars. What? Oh my goodness, what was it? I could have gotten hit. Oh my goodness, what's wrong with me? Why didn't you stop me? I was in the car, I was in the street. Oh my, what, what? what happened? What happened is Moshe now is no longer drunk and he now <clears throat> understands the ramifications. He understands the results. He understands what would have happened. When Mashiach comes, it's like going from a dark room, suddenly the sun shines brilliantly, and every human being sees Hashem right there. And obviously, 
Every human being also understands the consequences of the acts that I do. If you were to pull out a bottle of Clorox and pour me a nice, tall drink, I would not drink that glass. Not if you offered me $100, not for $1,000, not for $10,000, because it's going to destroy me, it's going to damage me. As I don't drink bleach now, no human being will sin when Mashiach comes. Why? Because every human being will recognize that every Avera in the Torah is there because it damages the person. It sullies me, it dirties me, it impedes my progress. It's stupid, and no one would do it. And on the flip side, mitzvahs are invaluable because I recognize the change in me. I recognize the effect it has on me. And I recognize what it does to me, to the world I live in. And if you'd like a mushal, what it's like to wake up in the time of Mashiach, I'll give you a very interesting mushal. It was 2003 when Sheldon Adelson took his company public. Sheldon Adelson is a rags-to-riches story. He began as a young boy in Chicago. He started his first business when he was about 12 years of age. He sold that business, bought another business, sold another one, eventually started Comdex, the computer show. He couldn't find hotels large enough, so he began building hotels. Eventually, he built the Sands and Venetian Hotels in Las Vegas. And in 2003, Sheldon Adelson was a very, very wealthy man. But in 2003, he took his company public. Now, Forbes magazine loves to count other people's money, a little bit like a Jewish accountant, and they love to illustrate things in terms that we can relate to. And they explain that Sheldon Adelson went from being a very wealthy man to the fifth wealthiest man in the world. His wealth increased by 750%, billions upon billions of dollars, and Forbes magazine gives a muscle. If you'd like to know his accumulation of wealth during that year and a half, he was making on average approximately $1 million an hour. A million dollars an hour. And I thought about that. What would it be like to make a million dollars an hour? Wow! Could you imagine? I opened the Dafayomi, <clears throat> closed the Gemara an hour later, a million bucks richer! Wow! I sit down to a Shabbos Suda and I bench two and a half million dollars richer. I go for a shluf and I wake up two million dollars richer. Life is amazing. A million dollars an hour. Wow. More precious than gold, the finest metals is every word of Torah. To us now, those are words. But when Mashiach comes, we'll get it, we'll see it, we'll understand it. Every word of learning changes the essence of me and changes the world I live in. It's an amazing accomplishment. And every Jew will be drawn to Limerat Torah, to learning, because it'll be, wow, what I'm accomplishing, what I'm doing. It's astonishing, far more than a million dollars an hour. Do you understand the joy that we will experience when we grow, when we accomplish, when we see Hashem there, and we recognize the values, we understand what life's about? Life will change in a very radical way. We'll all be close to Nevi'im, the Chavetz Chaim explains, and we'll all have a very different life. And if you'd like to understand then what it's like to daven, it's a vastly different experience. You see, tefillah is me communicating directly with the Creator of the heavens and the earth. Now I'm in that haze. Now I'm drunk and I don't realize it. But believe me, if I had a 10-minute meeting with Bill Gates or the president, or whoever it is that I look up to, 
That meeting will be astonishing. It will be amazing. Well, I get to commune with God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, speaking to Hashem right there. <clears throat> the joy of that experience is unimaginable. And life will change in a very real way. If you'd like to know why we need Mashiach, it's because life as we're leading it now is kind of like undead. The EKG just isn't. We go through the motions, we daven, we learn, we do. But you understand that it's all just robotic. And even if you get into it, it's a little bit, somewhat. Try my exercise. I give people the exercise when they listen to the Tefillah Project, part of the member section, and I have 12 sections, first on davening, then on another 10 on Shemon itself, and I give people a challenge. Shemon is 500 words. Pay attention during those 500 words. And I almost guarantee you'll find it very difficult. From Hashem Svasai Tiftach till Yil Ratzon is 500 words. You could talk to a person for an hour. You could schmooze with a guy for two days. You don't space out. You don't find yourself in different places. What happens? Why can't you pay attention in davening? And the answer is because I'm drunk. I'm spaced out. I'm living in a haze. It's sometimes clear, sometimes not, but it's never really there. When Mashiach comes like the sun, brilliantly shining, every human being understands life. Every human being sees Hashem. The drunkenness is gone. My neshama comes to the fore. Don't you understand? My neshama is implanted with all of the desires to grow and accomplish. My neshama comes from under the kisya kavod. My neshama is so pure, and it sees Hashem and relates to Hashem. Now it's blocked by the heavy cloak of physicality. When Mashiach comes, that blockage stops, and we go back on some level a lot closer to Adamarishon, not quite to where he was before the chait, but a lot closer, and every human being sees with absolute clarity, and life becomes tremendously enjoyable. It becomes enjoyable because growing is the most powerful, <clears throat> empowering sensation you'll ever have. Even in our current state, probably the single most enjoyable activity <clears throat> you'll ever engage in is growth. Why? Because that's what Hashem put you on the planet to do. You see, <clears throat> when you live your life as you're supposed to, you're at peace with yourself, you're in harmony, and you're leading life as you should. Your neshama is fulfilled and happy. There's an inner peace. And even in our current state, when we grow, that's the most enjoyable experience. But when Mashiach comes, it's so much more clear. And we pursue mitzvahs with a passion, with a love, with a desire. We wake up in the morning with a sense of, wow, 24 hours to change myself, change the world I live in. Let's go. Life is astonishing and amazing my opportunity to be close to my Creator, my opportunity to grow and accomplish. And for that reason alone, it's very, very worthwhile for us to daven for Mashiach, beg for Mashiach, implore and beseech Hashem to finally end this exile. But there's another reason, another reason that may not be quite as pure, but I think is also very, very significant. Here's a question. When you woke up yesterday morning, Shabbos, and you got out of bed, describe to me the level of your simcha sachayim, your joy. Describe to me the sense of elation that you felt. I'd like you to understand what a human being should be experiencing on a daily basis. The Chovos of Ovos gives us a mushal. 
He says, imagine a man who's blind. A man who's blind. But he wasn't born that way. You see, he was sighted until 35, and then he lost sight. And for the next 10 years, he had to recreate a life. And he lived for 10 years in a state of utter blindness, and he did manage to create for himself a life. But finally, after 10 years, he hears about a procedure which is experimental. It may not succeed, but if it does, he'll regain his sight. And he agrees to undergo the operation. And he's wheeled into the operating room. They put him under anesthetic. And for 10 hours, the operation goes on. Finally, he's beginning to awaken with the doctor at the feet of his bed, with the nurses gathered, with his family there. And the nurse comes over and begins pulling off the bandage. And he steals himself for this moment. Will he spend the rest of his life in utter darkness? Or will he see? And the nurse pulls off one bandage and pulls off the second. She says, open your eyes. He opens his eyes and he sees colors, dimensions, texture. He sees the faces of loved ones he hasn't seen in in 10 years. He looks out the window and he sees a cloud and a sky. He sees a meadow, he sees grass, he sees trees with tears in his eyes. He says, doctor, doctor, what could I ever do to repay you for this gift of sight? That hargasha, that feeling, we're supposed to experience on a daily basis. We have a string of brachas we say in the morning, Pokeach Ivrim, Hashem, you give sight to the blinded. Zokif Kefufim, you write the crooked. I have mobility. I have hands with which to feel, legs with which to walk, ears with which to hear. I enjoy so much from the physical properties that Hashem put into this world. And I'm supposed to experience tremendous joy. But it's not just that. Look at this world created with such beauty from color to flowers to trees to oceans, created with such majestic harmony and beauty. You're supposed to look at a landscape and say it's phenomenal. But it's supposed to move you. You're supposed to look at a tree and say it's gorgeous. The harmony and the symmetry, the fact that the roots are the same width as the branches, the fact that it grows is supposed to move you emotionally. You're supposed to enjoy food. Do you know how much wisdom and forethought Hashem put into making the foods that we eat taste as they do? From flavorful aromas to the textures, from apples to pears to bananas. So many different flavors, so many different nuances, so that we should enjoy. Here's the question. Do we enjoy it? Is life fun? When we sit down to eat a meal, do we really enjoy it? When we drive along the Palisades Park, when we see... And the rows and rows of trees, the gorgeous, gorgeous world, are we moved by it? And if you think about it, the reality is probably not. <clears throat> oh, we can work on it, <clears throat> we can improve, but the reality is that something's lacking. And would you like to know what's lacking? Ask a depressed person how much fun is life. You see, within me is <clears throat> a lack of simcha sachayim. The more you grow, the more you keep the Torah lifestyle, the more you'll have a joy. But even if you reach the pinnacle, it's still but kind of blasé. It's kind of like just whatever. It's not really there. And if you'd like to understand why we need Mashiach, a very selfish reason is because life ain't that much fun. Okay, it's good, there are moments, it's fine, it's wonderful, but it's not the world that Hashem created. And it's not what Hashem intended. And it's not the way Hashem wanted us to enjoy life. 
This world is passing. It's but a corridor. But Hashem wants us to enjoy our world here, enjoy our state to a tremendous degree. And for that reason, Hashem fashioned so many features in this world, so many things that Hashem put into this world strictly for us to enjoy. And the question is, why don't we enjoy it? And the answer is, because we're living a life of distraction, of busyness, we're not connected there's a lack of Simcha Zachayim, so I can't smell the flowers, I can't stop the busyness, and I can't really enjoy life. Obviously, the more I stop and the more I grow, the more I enjoy it. But if you'd like to know why we need Mashiach, it's because in a heartbeat, everything stops. Would you like to know what it's like when you're on that 11-hour flight, and finally you land in Lod, and the El Al plane taxis, and finally stops, and they shut off the jets. And the silence is deafening. Only when they shut off the jets do you realize how loud the din was for the past 11 hours. And when Mashiach comes, stop all the busyness, all the distractions, being pulled this way and that way and this way and that way. The lack of Yeshiva Das disappears. There's a sense of joy, a sense of happiness. I recognize why Hashem created me. I understand why I'm here. And life itself is fundamentally enjoyable. Number one, I grow and accomplish, and that's the greatest simcha when I learn, when I do mitzvahs. But number two, life itself is fun. It's geschmack, it's enjoyable, and that's the world that Hashem intended. But there's a third reason why we need Mashiach. Three years ago, I did a tour, a speaking tour in Eretz Yisrael of the number of the yeshivas and seminaries, and I repeated that tour this year. But this time around, I spoke about a different topic because I didn't want to have a repeat performance of the last time I was there. You see, the last time when I went to Erdstrahl, I was speaking in a seminary, and in quite a number of the seminaries and yeshivas, I spoke about the topic called life settings. The topic is, Shemuz number 24, that Hashem gives each human being a different life setting. Some people are granted poverty, some people wealth, some people health, some the opposite. Hashem handcrafts a very specific stage setting for each person because that's the ideal stage setting for their growth. Each of us are measured by one criteria. We're but actors on the stage. We're not judged by the props that we have in this lifetime. We're judged on how well we played our part. This life is but a stage setting that allows us to reach our greatness. That was a schmooze. In one seminary, when I said the schmooze, and I did my 45-minute routine, and afterwards I opened the floor to questions, a young woman raises her hand and says, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying, but I'm in such pain, how could I apply that to my life? Now, this wasn't the time to deal with that kind of emotional-laden question, so I sort of skirted the question, went on to the next young woman, and the next young woman raised her hand and says, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying, but I'm in such pain, how do I apply that to my life? And so I went on to the next one. And one after another, it seems like 40 out of the 60 young women had this question. My life is so difficult. The burden is so intense that how could I apply that to my life? Now, folks, here's the observation. These girls were not sleeping on the street. Somebody was paying the $20,000 seminary tuition. They weren't eating out of garbage cans. But their life as they felt it, as they experienced it, was so vastly different than anything we could imagine. And I'd like to share with you what we're experiencing in our current time is not normal times. There's so much suffering, so much unhappiness, 
so many people have it in such a bad way. You see, 500 years ago, life on this planet was harsh and difficult. People suffered. There was lack of food, and there were illnesses, there were diseases. The average person was real thin because they couldn't afford enough food to eat. I live in a house that rivals Baron Rothschild's house. If you look at the picture of Baron Rothschild from the 1780s, my house is nicer. My house is more opulent. My house also happens to have running water and electricity, which the wealthy baron couldn't imagine. Do you understand that we have luxuries that kings of yesteryear couldn't imagine? We live in the most opulent times in history. There's more abundance, more luxuries, more money available, more goods than ever in the history of humankind. Life used to be very difficult. In England in the Middle Ages, it was a known medical fact that to bathe in the winter was bad for your health. So the average citizen in Britain didn't take a bath from about October till maybe March. And you'd like to know what scratching and itching is about, and then you get into bed with the lice and the bed bugs, and, and your skin cracks in the cold, and there's no Jergens lotion to soften it up. You work long, bitter, hard hours. Life 500 years ago was very, very difficult. The clothes they wore and the houses they lived in, life was very harsh. We don't suffer that way today. We have luxuries of unparalleled proportion. But Hashem always keeps the balance. And while I believe it's true that we no longer suffer physically, we suffer emotionally, we suffer psychologically more than ever before. Do you know that there are 10 times the reported cases of clinical depression today than they were 30 years ago? But it's not just that there are 10 times the amount of clinical depression, it's that the median age has fallen so that it's frightening. The median age 30 years ago was 30 years of age. That was about the average age that a person would have his first bout of depression when he was 30. Today, it's 15. And I told my girls, uh, maybe not as a joke, I told them, if you want to marry a cola guy, go into the mental health field. Become a psychologist, a therapist, whatever you'll do. In the mental health field, you'll have an unending stream of people coming to you because there are so many people who are unhappy, unwholesome, and I'd like to ask a very simple question. What's pshat? Freedom and opportunity. Mankind for centuries, for millennium, dreamt about our current lifestyle. We don't suffer marauders. There are no tyrants running the show over here. You have opportunity, you have freedom. You want an education, you could go to any school imaginable. There are no guilds, no industries are closed off to you. You could lead the lifestyle you want as you want. And by and large, we have opportunity, we have money, we have health. We live a life that's so extraordinary, that's so unimaginable. If you took people from 200 years ago, they would say, oh my goodness, you're living in Gan Eden. It's incredible. One quick example, if you don't hear this, who was the emperor of England during the Revolutionary War period? So you may remember it's King George. <clears throat> King George, the despot, sat on that throne, and if you remember the famous portrait, there's King George wearing a big bulky fur. And on top of that fur is a heavy pelt. And on top of that pelt is another pelt. There's big King George sitting on the throne of England. 
Here's a question. Why was King George wearing a big, heavy coat and a pelt and a pelt on top of that? Because the picture was painted in the wintertime. And in Buckingham Palace in the wintertime, it was freezing cold. The king had to wear that many layers because Buckingham Palace was frigid. How would you heat the palace? There was a fireplace over yonder. And the fireplace radiates heat. So the heat comes to the king's front. His front is warm, but his back is cold. So he turns around. Now his back is warm. His front is cold. With the king's crown jewels, he couldn't heat Buckingham Palace. He walked cold, smelly, dank hallways at night, got into a bed of 48 inches of duck feather. You know what happens to your back when you... (coughs) And no chiropractors in the morning around to just kind of straighten you out. When the King of England went on affairs of state, he got into the royal coach, which was pulled by 12 white steeds. And that sounds very, very regal and very royal until you realize that the coach had wooden wheels and the streets, the roads were filled with potholes. That means his royal majesty, as he sat in the royal coach, went (laughs) hour after hour. And when he was invited to France to the Earl's wedding for seven days, he (laughs) until his insides wanted to come out. Not my life. I get into my Toyota Camry air suspension ride. I set the air conditioning exactly as I wanted, stereo sound. I've solved 50% of Shalom Bayes problems. I've dual controls for the heat and cold. My wife wants it a little hotter. I change her side, my side. I live in a world that's far more elegant, far more wealthy, far more luxurious than did the King of England. So here's the question. Why are people so unhappy? Why are there so many issues? Why are there so many things going around? And if you'd like to understand a major part of that question, I believe a major part of that question is really quite simple. You see, Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist. Viktor Frankl discovered that he was Jewish when the Nazis put him on a train bound for Auschwitz. Interestingly, he survived, and he wrote a book. The book is called Man in Search of Meaning, and the book has two sections to it. The first section is where he describes what it was like for him living in Auschwitz when he tried to be dispassionate, he tried to step away, to almost play psychiatrist and view the psyche of the people there, and it's a harrowing read. The second part is also very significant. The second part of the book is when he describes landing on these shores, And he opened his practice on the Upper East Side in the Upper 80s. He had been a world-famous psychiatrist. No sooner did he put out a shingle than his practice was filled. But he describes that the patients that he was now seeing were coming to him with symptoms that he had never seen before. In decades of practice in Europe, he had never experienced these types of issues going on. And he describes the intake interview. A young woman would come in, and he would say, what could I do for you? Well, Doc, I'm depressed. I'm sorry to hear that. Is your marriage? No. Is it your, your, your kids? No. <clears throat> Is it your job? No. So why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc. That's why I'm here. A man will come in 45 years of age on top of his game, making a fortune of money. What could I do for you? Well, Doc, I'm depressed. I'm sorry to hear that. Is it your, your marriage? No. Your kids? No. Is it your, your, your business? No. Your bridge game? No. What is it? I don't know, Doc. That's why I'm here. I'm depressed. 
patient after patient would come in without an attributable cause. An attributable cause is a reason to be depressed. If a woman was married for 35 years and she loses her husband, that's a rough deal in life. That's a trauma that a person has to deal with. And we could certainly understand why a woman may need a while to pick herself back up. If you have a genetic predisposition, a gift from your parents towards depression, that's also a reason. But do you know that science now shares with us an interesting revelation of the tens of millions of cases a year that are reported in this country of clinical depression? Of the tens of millions of cases of depression reported each year, only 16% have an attributable cause. The rest have no reason. No trauma, no genetic predisposition, no family history. They're just depressed. And when studying this condition, Viktor Frankl reached the following conclusion. From a secular psychiatric vantage point, he says these people were depressed because they lacked purpose, they lacked meaning in life. And Viktor Frankl hit the nail on the head. When Hashem took you from under the Kisei covered and put you into this world, it was to accomplish, to reach greatness, to change yourself and change the very generation you live in. It was to reach worlds of heights. And if you do that, there's an inner joy, and there's a simcha sachayim. But if you don't do that, if you run after anything else, distractions and busyness from the iPhone to the Android, from the Facebook to the Twitter, to the busy, to the busy, to the busier than busy and busy, you wake up in the morning and you say, ugh, what am I doing? What do you mean what I'm doing? I'm busy. It's great. Ugh. But I'm making money. So what? But I'm famous. So what? You see, Yenoshama is pure. Yenoshama comes from the highest part of the cosmos. And Yenoshama desires deeply to change itself and change the very world in which you live. You were given a Torah. You were given mitzvahs. That's the spiritual system of self-perfection. If you follow it, if you adhere to it, if you cling to it, there's a sense of joy, there's a simcha sachayim. But if you'd like to understand our life, the world we live in now, people are not happy. And there's so much unrest. And there's so many people suffering. And I'm talking about young people, and I'm not talking about little stuff. I get phone calls, I get emails, it's frightening. My wife once said to the kids, if you knew half of what Abba deals with, your hair would stand on end. My wife doesn't know a tenth of what I deal with. Everybody comes, and they all seem to have ideal life. Everything's great, except for, and you find out what's going on, and there's such a deep psychological, emotional happiness. It is true that in the course of history, we never had it so good in terms of material possessions, in terms of freedom, in terms of opportunity, in terms of wealth. And it's also true that we never suffered as much psychologically, emotionally. You know, I said that very same schmooze to a high school group and a beautiful young girl, 15 years of age maybe, came over to me on Shabbos afterwards and she, with tears in her eyes, asked me the following question. Rabbi, where in the Torah does it say that it's forbidden to cut? Now forget what I said to her, but let me explain to you what she was asking. Do you know what cutting means? You see, the human sensory system can only process one set of inputs at a time. Your dentist may tap you over here so you don't pay attention to the sensation here. Well, when you're in such emotional pain, cutting, causing yourself pain over here, 
and distracts you from the emotional pain, and it's a sense of relief. And when you see young girls cutting, but I don't mean lightly, um, <clears throat> buddies with Jay Korngold. Jay Korngold is a plastic surgeon here in Muncie. And Jay tells me from the finest families he gets girls, he has to graft skin from elbow to wrist because they've done such damage that he has to restore. But the finest of families, the seemingly nicest of girls, what's going on? What's shot in our generation? And if you'd like to understand what was happening when I was standing in front of that seminary group, I can only think of one thing that occurred to me. I want you to imagine that it's 1946. And imagine that I'm speaking to a group of concentration camp survivors. And I say to them, you know, both sides, we have to put the past aside. We have to rebuild. We have to create a new reality. We have to leave that world. Needless to say, there'd be a, a chasm. that I couldn't, They couldn't relate to me. They can't hear what I'm saying. I'm speaking a language they can't even recognize. That was what it was like when I was speaking to these seminary girls. There was such a pervasive sense of woe, of suffering in their world, in their reality, that what I was talking about wasn't relevant to them. And here's the punchline, folks. It's not normal. It's not the way Hashem wants it to be. It's not the way Hashem intended it to be. Hashem is a mitiv. Hashem is a giver. Hashem wants us to enjoy this world. Hashem wants us to be happy. Hashem wants us to accomplish and if you want to know why we need Mashiach, because in an instant, everything changes. Physically, nothing changes. Physically, very, very little. There's no change in my sabratius. But every human being understands that fog is lifted. The drunkenness passes. And I see Hashem right here. I understand what life's about. I understand why I'm here. And I stop the stupid habits and the dumb behaviors that cause me so much difficulty. You have a problem with your wife? Maybe a complaint about your husband? Here's a very simple observation. I guarantee Mashiach comes, that complaint will disappear. You see, your complaint against your wife, either it's legitimate and your wife will change, or you recognize that that's her nature and she can't change and she's not supposed to change. Your problem with your husband, either he'll instantly stop doing the stupid things he does, or you'll quickly realize that that's who he is and he can't change and he will do that because that's who he is, and you'll be accepting of it. But do you understand how much disharmony happens in marriages? <clears throat> do you understand how many fights come about because my wife should be doing that, my husband should be this, I want this, I want that. And if you boil down the fight, and I get hundreds of people, hundreds of shalom bias problems and more, and I'm telling you, if you boil it all down to its start point, it's trivial nonsense. But once the fights start, they get worse and worse, and the habits start building, and the spiral starts. And before you know it, they're kicking and screaming, and they're enemies. But it started with such triviality, such nonsense. Mashiach comes, we get it, we understand it. We no longer smash ourselves into the wall time after time. We bump into the wall now. Why? Because it's dark. I trip over that bar time after time now because it's pitch black. And I do behaviors that are self-destructive, and I engage in thought processes that are just completely and destructive to me because it's pitch black. But when the light comes on, I get it, I understand it. And if you'd like to know why we need Mashiach, number one, because life changes, because I know what Hashem is, and I recognize the value of mitzvah, and life is so meaningful and purposeful. Number two, I get to enjoy this world for what Hashem wanted it to be. Number three, 
the amount of people who are suffering and really, really in pain stop suffering. But our question wasn't that. Our question is, why don't we cry? Would you like to know why we don't cry? I believe it's very simple. Oliver Sacks was a neurologist. Oliver Sacks studied very interesting different phenomena that would happen when the brain of the human malfunctions. One of the things he writes about is strokes. Now, we're familiar with strokes when there's a lack of oxygen to the brain. Oftentimes, a person becomes paralyzed in part of his body, maybe all of his body, and that's a common manifestation of a stroke. But he explains that he had many cases of strokes that were much more subtle. He describes a patient who had a very minor stroke that seemed to have only affected one part of his brain, the visual cortex. And the result was that this man was blind. His eye functioned fully well. The lens opened, the iris did its job, the optic nerve even functioned. But the visual cortex, that part of the brain that processes sight, was damaged and no longer functioned. Hence, he was blind, he couldn't see a thing. But it wasn't just that he was blind, he had no memory of sight. When the doctor said to him, do you remember what a red light looks like? What do you mean, look? You know, what does a a light pole look like? What do you mean, look? He didn't fathom that there was such an entity called sight. You see, his brain was damaged, and not just the visual cortex, the entire memory section, so that every memory of anything he had ever seen was wiped out, and even the recognition that there was such a thing called sight was erased. And it wasn't just that he was blind, he didn't understand that there was such a thing called sight. My friends, if you would like to understand who we are, and why it is that we don't cry about the Hurban, it's because we're like that man. We forgot long ago what life is supposed to be like. And we live in a world and we assume this is normal. This is the way it is. People suffer. People have a rough, okay, I'm not that happy. I'm trying and life's okay. And I, I guess it could be better. But, but we accept this as normal. I'm here to tell you it's not normal. It's not regular. If you had a kid who was born in Bergen-Belsen, and spent his formative years there, he lived in a world that was weird, that was perverse. That's not normal. And it wouldn't take long to explain to him that that's not a normal life. My friends, the life that we're leading now isn't normal. It's not regular, not for us, not for our communities, and certainly not for the people who suffer. And if you'd like to know why we need Mashiach, it's to change all that. And if you want to know why we cry, it's because we long ago forgot what life is supposed to be like. There's a fellow who grew up. His mother was a concentration camp survivor. When he was 13 years of age, he made a discovery. He slept at a friend's house, and he suddenly discovered that not every mother wakes up every night screaming from a nightmare. He thought that's what every mother does. He thought because his mother woke up in a drenched sweat, screaming at the top of her lungs, He assumed that's what mothers do. All mothers do that. And he went to his friend's house to sleep. And you talking? He slept the whole night and no screaming, no ranting, no rant. Oh, what's going on? And he made the discovery that what his mother experienced was not normal. My friends, we have to look at the life we lead and recognize these are not normal times. What we're suffering from is an acute and pervasive emotional and psychological what do you call it, a worldwide depression? I don't know what you call it. But it's not life as Hashem intended. 
Hashem put us into this world to grow and accomplish, and Hashem wants us to be happy in this existence. There are so many features that Hashem put in this world for us to enjoy, <clears throat> but there has to be a balance. Clearly, the more you lead a Torah lifestyle, <clears throat> the more you make Torah central and vital to your existence, the happier you are. But at the end of the day, maybe I can change, maybe you can change, but we're not going to change our communities. We're not going to change the vast far reaches of the damage that's happening. The only hope is Mashiach. And one of the things a person has to do on a Tisha B'Av is stop and ask themselves, is this what Hashem intended? Is this life the way Hashem wanted us to lead it? And the answer is it's not. And there are a couple of more steps that are key and essential to understand in this progress. In Eretz Yisrael today, there's something called Zaka. First responders. And on one level, it's a beautiful thing to see. Many times it's administer first aid. Many times, unfortunately, it's to pick up the body pieces because covered mace demands that the skin, the blood, the remains of people are given the proper respect and buried appropriately. And many people say it's a big Kiddush Hashem. You see the fellows with beards, the payas, running on these motorcycle scooters. The first responders are always there. And on one level, it looks like a big Kiddush Hashem. And I'd like to share with you, I can't imagine a bigger Chil Hashem. In the Chutzos Yerushalayim, in the streets of Yerushalayim, our blood is so cheap that our enemies blow up our men, women, and children to the extent that we have to have first responders equipped to pick up the skin and the blood. Do you know what a Chil Hashem that is? This is God's world, and God's country, and God's people, and you dare to even speak to a Jew without being asked to speak to him? You dare walk on the sidewalk of a Jew without getting permission first? That's the Am HaNivcha, the chosen nation. Are we elitist? You better believe it because Hashem wrote it in the Torah. Are we the chosen nation? You had better believe it because that's our destiny. And that destiny has an up and it has a down to it. If we follow the Chukim Torah, we're exalted, we're mighty, we're majestic. And if we don't, we're trotted upon, <clears throat> we're oppressed, we're tortured and murdered. But that's the Jewish people, God's people. And when you see the most moral nation in existence being lambasted by the United Nations, and you recognize what a Chil Hashem, how dare you speak about God's people that way when they're defending themselves. And if you'd like to feel what a Chil Hashem is, just recognize one single reality. Hashem created maintains and orchestrates everything in this world. And this is God's country, God's people, and the affronts, the indignities that a Jew suffers in our time is an awesome Chil Hashem. And with that comes a corollary. Okay, we don't feel our pain, but do you understand that Hashem does? Do you ever have a sense in your heart when you see a young person suffering and you say to yourself, Oi, that's horrible, that's terrible. Well, I'd like to share with you an interesting thought. No matter how much you'll experience it, no matter how much you'll feel it, it's not one ten thousand, ten thousandth of the pain that Hashem has for that person. The Chovah of Ovas explains to us, more merciful, more kindly than any human being we could ever imagine is Hashem. Hashem loves every one of His creatures ten thousand, ten thousand, ten thousand times more than any love that we've ever experienced. And if you'd like to know one reason to beg Hashem to bring Mashiach, is because, Kaviyachal Hashem, you're in pain. You're watching your people suffer. Okay, we're too callous, we're too deadened. 
<clears throat> we forgot what sight means and we don't feel our pain. But Kavayochal Hashem, you do feel the pain. Hashem, bring Mashiach for you, if nothing else. But the truth is we should learn to feel our pain. We should learn to recognize that life as we're leading it is not what Hashem intended. Life as we're leading it is not the way it's supposed to be. And I'll share with you one war story only because it helps, maybe, to understand the perversion that we're living in. I got a call from London. The young man has a question, what does he do? His son was over at the cousin's house, and the two boys were on the iPad watching pornography. Okay, listen, pornography is a problem for kids, for boys to be watching. What do you have to call me all the way from England for? The answer is the age of the two boys. The two boys were seven years old. Do you know what it's like when you're seven years old to watch pornography? You're pre-sexual. There's no desire. You don't relate to it. You don't understand it. It's traumatic because it's worse than violence. It's just so, it's so destructive. Our kids today are living in a world that's so abnormal, so abhorrent. It's not normal times. It's not regular. It's not the happy days. America that I grew up in was a vastly different country. And Bob and Sue got married, moved into the suburbs, built a house with a white picket fence, had 1.5 kids and a dog, and that's how they lived. That's not the world our kids are growing up in. And the world they're growing up in is so destructive that their reality is so misformed and their life is so confused by it that there's so much pain, so much suffering. This is not the world that Hashem intended to be. When Adam Arishan sinned, he changed the very nature of creation, and that's the gamble called free will. When Hashem put man into existence, Hashem gave him the keys to my sabratius, and Hashem gave him the power. When Hashem sits back, it's because Hashem wrote laws of nature, laws of the physical world, <clears throat> laws of the spiritual world, and it's as if Hashem says, I can't do anything. I wrote the laws and I will keep them moving, and it's me doing every part of it, but these are the ways that I've created the world and the way the world will continue. And when Adam Marishan sinned, he changed the very essence of creation. He put desire into the world in a sense that it was never there before, and made everything cloudy and dark and very, very hard to see. When Mashiach comes, the clouds dissipate. The clarity is there, and I get it, I understand. But you also have to understand that every part of Jewish history, Hashem sits there crying and crying, and if it could be, if it could say such words, Hashem almost can't do anything about it. Because that's the way Hashem created the world, and that's the way Hashem runs the world. And when Hashem puts a Hitler in power, when He puts that pawn and that pu- puppet into position, and if it could be Hashem feels the pain of every Jew far more than you and I will, and if you'd like to daven for Mashiach, it's because Hashem, please end it. Hashem can't do it. If it could be, it's out of Hashem's control, because that's the way Hashem created the world and the way Hashem runs the world. But it is within our control. And the first job we have to do is wake up to understand life as we're currently leading it isn't normal, isn't regular, it's abnormal, it's strange. And we should beg Hashem for Mashiach, please end this long, bitter exile, because I can't take it anymore. It's so powerfully, pervasively, ugh. And I think that's something that a person has to think about. And I want to close with one last observation. Moshe Dayan, when he entered the city of Yerushalayim, was not a religious person. It was the third day of the Six-Day War, and he entered the old city. He had been there 19 years earlier, 
but he describes the emotions that he felt. And he writes it as the pinnacle of his career as a military man. He was the minister of defense when Yerushalayim was rejoined. And he describes what it was like when the soldiers touched the wall. Remember, those soldiers were young. They were 19, 20 years of age. They had never seen it in their life because in 48, the old city was taken over by Jordan. And these were Jews who were born either after the time or were little kids. They had never seen the coastal. And when they went over and touched the stones, Moshe Dayan describes there were tears, tears, the most powerful emotions you can imagine. And Rabbi Krohn tells a story that there was one soldier who's touching the wall and is bawling tears, buckets of tears. And then one of his fellow soldiers comes over to him and says, I don't understand. They're crying, him datim, they're religious. I know why they're crying. Why are you crying? You're not dati. And the soldier turned to his friend and said the words, I'm crying because I don't know why I should be crying. And that's also a reality. When you don't know why you should cry, that's a reason to cry. We've suffered 2,000 years, exile after exile, and this current exile is probably the worst, not physically, emotionally, and psychologically. And it's time to beg Hashem, time to ask Hashem to end it, to finally bring the gula. May this be the last Tisha B'Av we celebrate as a day of mourning. May the next one be... Now, if um, those people are still here with me, if you'd like to ask questions, we'll take some questions now. Um, I'm going to sort of open the floor also to hands. If you want to raise your hand, I hope we'll be able to see it. Um, Okay, here's the first question that I see over here. Uh, what is one practical idea that one can take out of Tishabov, and how would one continue to build on this idea post-Tishabov and apply the lessons of this period of time throughout the entire year? Okay, it's a very fair question and a very good question. And I would say, from what I was discussing this evening, there are two concepts that need to be taken out. <clears throat> Number one, to think about life from a vastly different perspective throughout the year. And ask myself, every time I see someone who's depressed and down, who's suffering, and even my own life, to ask myself, am I as happy as I'm supposed to be? And to recognize that, gee golly, life as we're leading it is not the way it's supposed to be. And the corollary to that is to grow as much as I can now. Obviously, I beg Hashem to bring Mashiach, but at the same time, I recognize that the more I change, the more I grow, the more I lead a passionate Torah lifestyle, the happier I'll be, the more I'll change the essence of me. And I think those are two important lessons to, to keep in mind. Okay, <clears throat> question number two. Rabbi, I am not the most observant. However, I am very connected to my Judaism. If we as a people are responsible for one another, then what of me and others who are not connected? Are we bringing the rest of Kleistral down? Though I strive and try to grow, I feel somewhat handcuffed <clears throat> by the world we live in because of my upbringing and partially where I live. I'm not in the area where there are a lot of observant Jews, Friends are non-observant or even non-Jewish. It's almost like I'm caught between two worlds. It is difficult in getting my family to move to a more observant lifestyle because we are so used to the secular world. Okay, I hear the question. And I I feel the question in a very, very real way. We live in very, very strange times where Jews are so alienated from our roots that two generations, three generations, four and five generations of non-observance, not being familiar with Torah, not being familiar with mitzvahs, and it's a huge problem. 
And the only thing you can do is to keep growing. You know, Baruch Hashem, there's something called the internet. As much as it's a <clears throat> terrible problem, it's a tremendous bracha. You go on the shmooz.com, there are hundreds of shmoozim that deal with everything from dominating to muna <clears throat> to anger management to every manual subject. If you get bored of the shmooz, you go to Torah anytime and you'll find hundreds of other <clears throat> rabbis and speakers who will inspire you. And you can grow today in ways that were never possible. You could live in Altoona, <clears throat> you could live in Nigeria, you could live anywhere in the world, and you could download on a regular basis classes and <clears throat> Torah teachings, and you can grow. Now, <clears throat> The rest of your family is not so simple because obviously you're a part of a family and that's where Hashem put you and that's what Hashem wants from you. You have to do your best to help them, to help them come along. You, obviously you can't force anything and you're not really free in that sense to certainly to change their opinion or their ways. And you have to grow as much as you can in your circumstances and your ways. You daven, you ask Hashem, you pray, you ask Hashem to help and Hashem helps. Hashem wants your success. More than anything, we have to remember that Hashem wants us to succeed. And Hashem wants our betterment. So if you recognize that, you understand that, and you daven to Hashem, you pray and ask Hashem to help you, I think you'll find a way. So again, while I feel the pain of what you're describing, I also recognize there are great opportunities in our day and age. And may Hashem guide you properly. Okay, here's a very important question. Why didn't Hashem find a different way to perfect man after Adam's mistake? Okay, so let me tell you something. To be candid, you and I would not do very well at certain jobs. There's certain jobs I think I could take on, certain jobs I can do a decent, uh, decent job at, and some jobs I don't think I'm well equipped for. One job I do not believe that I'm well equipped for is to uh, be God. You see, um, being God is not such an easy thing. Because you have to have wisdom that's so wide and so vast. You have to see things from one end of the world to the other. You have to understand the nature of existence, the nature of creation, and you have to understand what man really needs. No one understand that while it's true that this is not the world that Hashem wanted, in a certain sense it's obvious that Hashem still wants this world as it is. What I mean by that is, while it may be difficult... The reality is that a person can accomplish in today's day and age worlds and leaps and bounds beyond anything previously. You see, if you were born in Volusian 200 years ago, and the entire shtetl you grew up in, everyone was learning and everyone was holy in Kaddish, if you went along the path, it didn't mean much. But if in today's day and age, like the person in the question before, where you woke up without knowing anything, and you saw the light, and you realized that Torah is true, and you began changing and growing, you're given reward, you're accomplishing worlds that are unimaginable. You see, it's very difficult times we live in, but it's also amazing times, because because of the challenge, because of the difficulties, a person can grow today and accomplish worlds that are beyond beyond anything previously. And in that sense, while it's true, it's a very rough existence, it's also unique and wonderful times. Why didn't Hashem do differently? Again, I'm not God, and it's very hard to answer that question, but I would have to imagine that the answer is that for whatever the cheshben, Hashem feels that the current situation is what needs to be, and the opportunity for many to accomplish beyond description outweighs the pain that we have to suffer because of it. Okay, here's a question um, containing two questions. How would we still be working when Mashiach comes? Wouldn't it be so obvious that it's a waste of time and we should be learning instead? Mm-hmm. Okay, let, let me start with that first one because 
because I can't understand, uh, I don't follow the second one. Okay, <clears throat> isn't it a waste of time to work, and <clears throat> isn't it obvious that when Mashiach comes, we will not be working anymore? Okay, so <clears throat> first of all, I'd like to share with you something interesting. Apparently, <clears throat> the creator of the heavens and the earth doesn't fully agree with you. If Hashem felt that it was a waste of time for you to be working, well, guess what? You wouldn't be working. Meaning to say, <clears throat> clearly, Hashem feels that working is an important part of your reality, because <clears throat> if it weren't, you wouldn't be working. Meaning to say, the reality is that as we live right now, as we exist right now, working is a very real part of it, and it's something that's very needed. Now, if you'd like to know what happens when Mashiach comes, we still work. Maybe about two hours a day, but you still work because it's part of being a human, and a human being needs that for reasons which I'm not going to discuss now. If you get a chance to listen to Amuna in the workplace, I get very involved there in why work is an integral part of Avodah Hashem that's in the member section. By the way, if you're not aware of the member section, there is a problem on the iPod um, and the iPhone. The member section, you can't become a member there. Apparently, we are Android uh, favorable and we are anti-Apple because you can't become a member there. Um, Hopefully, we'll fix that in a day uh, or so. But anyway, the member section contains a tremendous amount of all the new series. The past three, four years, if you notice, there are very few new schmoozmen that are coming out because what I'm doing is I'm focusing on series be talking workshop and moon in the workplace. Um, the Tvila project, which is the first part, is twelve parts on Tvila. The next part is on Shmon Esrei. Ten parts that deal with just understanding Shmon Esrei. I spent a tremendous amount of time developing the material in the member section. The member section basically is the chance for you to help the schmooze continue to help you. All the material, the regular schmooze, is free. But the reality is, it's very difficult for me to fundraise, so I ask people to donate. It's Stucka, it's Misa, but I ask people to donate to access the member section. It's only $18 a month, and again, it's Misa, it's Stucka. Um, if you'd like to access it, there's a wealth of as many shiurim as in the 248 that are on the regular shiurim. There are more uh, in the member section. And again, many, many series of Parsha in depth, which is a 45 minutes, um, you know, shear on each Parsha, a lot of interesting things there. I welcome you to look at it and see what's there, and I welcome you to access it. It's a very, I, I think it's very, very valuable. In any case, the reason I mention it is because in the Amuna workshop, I spent a lot of time on why it is that Hashem wants us to work and what that function that plays in our avodas Hashem, in our growth. Clearly, when Mashiach comes, things change in a very real way, meaning to say we no longer have to work 8, 10, 12 hours a day. We work maybe 2 hours a day. But work is still a part of it, and again, because it's not a waste of time. But again, that piece I'm not going to get involved in now. Again, you listen to me to the uh, Muna workplace. Hopefully, you have a chance to, um, to to understand a little better. Okay, when we recited Kinnis and Shul this morning, true, they were very beautifully written and descriptive. But how can we truly relate to the problems and horrors the Jews in the Middle Ages faced? Okay, so that's a difficult question for me to answer. And I'll explain to you why. Um, it could be I don't do it now as much because now maybe I focus more on today's problems. But I spent countless Tishabovs, three weeks, nine days, sitting on the floor, crying and crying and crying until the tears couldn't stop. I would read about the horrors of the Crusades, the horrors of the Holocaust, the horrors of the Spanish Inquisition. And when you read this material and you dwell on it and you think about it, Tears come to your eyes, and I remember more than once saying to a Rebbe of mine, it was Motzei Tishabov, 
and we were <clears throat> Kiddush Lavana, and we were dancing. And I said, how can we dance? How can we dance? How can you do that? And it's such a <clears throat> powerful sense of imo anochi b'tzara, we're one nation, we're one people. If it's far away and it's distant, you have to read. You have to take books, descriptive, <clears throat> whether it be <clears throat> histories or novels that describe the times, that describe, and there are many, by the way, written by <clears throat> Torah Jews. There are many <clears throat> books now that are out. That are, I hate to say there are wonderful books on the Holocaust, but there's an entire entire genre of, of works on the Holocaust, but even far far back in time than that, <clears throat> tremendous works on the Spanish Inquisition, on the Crusades. <clears throat> You're right, if you walk into Tishabov and start reading foreign words, they won't affect you, but you have to connect to your people. The way you connect to your people is read history. Zechru, you most dar it's a Pusik in, in, in Chumash that tells us you have to read history, you have to read the way Hashem runs the world, and you have to understand that we're a part of a nation. So I guess my answer is you have to invest the time to do it. All right, and don't we learn that the reason for the base of Migdash, the base of Migdash was destroyed was because of Sinas Chinam. So isn't that the central thing that people should be working on? How can we know that self-improvement in other areas is necessary too in order to bring Mashiach? Okay, and this is a very good question, and it's clear, the Chavetz Chaim writes, that a major part of our avoda today has to be in the realm of improving our relationship amongst our friends because the second base of Mikdash was destroyed because of Sinas Chinam. Granted, the first one was not, but largely the second one was because of Sinas Chinam. However, you should know it was not the only sin. And you should also know, had the Jewish people been functioning as we should have been in other areas, the base of Mikdash would not have been destroyed. Had Torah been learnt then with the right Kavana with the right intention, Torah would have protected, and the base of Mikdash would not have been destroyed. Has we as a people been where we should have been, that sin would not have been visited with that intensity, and the base of Mikdash would not have been destroyed. We have to work on many, many areas. By the way, the clearest area, if you really want to be concerned about your fellow Jew, do some kirov. Ask yourself, my neighbors, my friends, what could I do to help them grow, help them accomplish if you have a coworker who's not religious, ask which book you could give him, which website can you show him to that may help them, they answer questions. There's such a thirst out there today. There are so many Jews who aren't from, who desperately crave and wish they had meaning and purpose. And that's probably the greatest example of Avas Chinam you could ex- exhibit. But again, it's not only about Sinas Chinam, it's about all our Avod Hashem, but you should know for the record that tonight what I'm focusing on is not even that. You see, you're assuming that we can bring Mashiach, and maybe we can. I'm a little bit more jaded. Maybe I've been here too many Tishabovs already. Maybe I've been watching the world, especially of late, gone down the tube so quickly. But there's two ways that Mashiach comes, either because we're Zohar, we merit, or because it's just too late and Hashem saves us. Either way is fine, just let it happen. And there are many times when I think it's a lot more likely for it to happen because we beg and beseech and we ask Hashem, and Hashem will bring it even if we're not worthy, if there's a tefillah that somehow changes the gzardin. So it is a very, um, it's a very difficult issue, and it's a very real problem. 
And we have to grow and accomplish, and we also have to recognize that on some level we can't change. You see, maybe I can change me, but I can't change the generation. Maybe I can help myself, but I can't rid all the teenagers of their suffering. And I damn to Hashem to bring Mashiach because I recognize how severe and how serious it is. I don't know if I'm allowed to call names, but I see Ellie Estrin, you asked a question, so I'm going to, I'd like to read that. I, just, I hope I'm not embarrassing anyone here. Okay, anyway, I understand what you've discussed about the importance of Mashiach. However, I've heard differing opinions about the prerequisites of Mashiach, namely the war of Gog and Magog. I want to know if you can discuss that. I had a few questions about that. Does everyone survive, etc.? Okay, so first of all, let's understand something that the Rambam says very clearly. Anyone who says, I know exactly how Mashiach is going to come and what the events are going to be that precede him is lying. Explains the Rambam that even the Nevi'im have different versions of what's going to be, and none of us will know until Mashiach comes exactly what's going to happen. Now, I've heard Rabbi Deviritz, Rashiva Rochester, say a number of times something very profound. He says, if you read through the Nevi'im and all the descriptions of the war of Gog and Magog and the horrors, no one understand that all of them were fulfilled fully in measure during those years from 1939 to 1945. The Holocaust fulfilled all of the requirements fully well. And you can read the Psukim and look at the events and you see the correlation is frightening. You see the connection. Sometimes it makes my hair stand on end when you see how clearly it was foretold by the Psukim and Chumash in the Vim. And I certainly hope that that's the Pshat, that we went through that war already, the world war, and when the world was torn apart. Redvidus explained, if you know, if you want to know when Mashiach comes, you just have to imagine from the time of Alosa Shachar till the sun actually comes up, till Neitzacham, it takes a certain amount of time. It takes close to 45 minutes, maybe an hour, whatever the time is. In world history, that's the time we're living in. In the times of history, the time from the end of World War II to now is but a snap of the fingers. It's not a long time. And I think it's very obvious that things are speeding up now. Things are happening so much more quickly. Five years ago, the country that I live in was a vastly different country. There wasn't a dream that a Supreme Court would stand up with their black robes and be so immoral, so perversive as to make the law of the land depravity. There wasn't a person alive who dreamt about such utter chaos. The world is spinning so quickly out of control. It sure does look like Mashiach is ut ut here. We certainly hope and pray, and certainly I don't think it takes a rocket scientist. Again, I don't know exactly. It's not my... It's way above my pay scale. I'd have to be a Novi, and I'm certainly no no Novi, so I can't tell you exactly. But it sure does seem that way, and I'm certainly hopeful that it's going to be very peaceful, very quick. Mashiach comes, and everything just stops. Okay, here's another question. Um, how, do we excuse me, how do we balance realizing that we live in such a twisted, murky, confused world without Mashiach, with the need for us to maintain a Simcha Sachayim? Okay, that is an excellent question. And I have to be honest with you. The answer is me and everyone else. And when I mean me, I mean every one of us as an individual. As an individual, you should grow and accomplish, and it should be a joy in life. And folks, to be honest with you, I love life. 
I am an enjoy life. And listen, not every moment is so fantastic. I have pains and sorrows and war. But when I wake up in the morning, there's a joy, there's a simcha, there's a happiness. I went out Erev Shabbos. I went for a hike, even though it was Erev Tishabov, I needed to work on the shmooz, and I went to Harriman State Park, which is seven miles from my house, and I climbed this mountain, and I looked out at the majesty of this world, and I was filled with an elation, with a joy, with way too much simcha for Erev Tishabov. <clears throat> Should you, as an individual, enjoy life? Yes. How do you do that? By learning, by being deeply involved in learning and growing. <clears throat> the more you do that, the happier you are, <clears throat> the more simcha sachayim you'll have. Some people, by nature, by temperament are more happy, less happy. But the bottom line is, the more you make Torah central, and the more you make your growth as an Ebed Hashem, the pivot point of your life, the happier you'll be. So for you as an individual, the answer is grow and accomplish, and you'll feel that joy. The problem is that it's a big world out there, and there are many Jews and many people who I can't give that dose to. Many teenagers, many older people, many younger people who don't get it. And that reality is something that's very, very painful. So for you as an individual, you should focus on growing and accomplishing. For you as a member of a nation, you have to also feel the pain and recognize that there probably is no grand solution other than Mashiach coming, but more than anything, to recognize that the times we're living in are abnormal. It's not regular. The depression, the obsessions, the anorexia, the cutting, the amount of people who are fundamentally unwholesome just isn't normal times. Okay, here's an interesting question. I deploy to a combat zone. As a woman and as a veteran, it is hard to talk to anyone. Depression hurts, and you're right. I have no reason to be depressed. Is there a mitzvah something I could do to combat depression? Okay, first of all, um, I, as a citizen of the United States of America, have to thank you. Um, you know, it's a strange thing. We forget the debt that we owe to the armed forces of the United States for defending us and for going to battle. So first off, I, as a citizen, have to thank you. And folks, you should know, for July 4th, the flag was placed in front of my house and it still waves there because we are supposed to be very appreciative. It's true that permanently we don't belong on these shores, but this has been a malchus shel chesed, we have enjoyed freedom and opportunity unprecedented as Jews, and we have to recognize and be appreciative. So that as a preamble. The answer to your question is depression is a very difficult thing to deal with. Typically, when dealing with depression, there are three arms. There are three strategies that a person has to do. One is biochemical. Oftentimes, you need the right medication. You need a psychiatrist because oftentimes you need to find the balance within the neurotransmitters, within the brain chemistry, to be able to do the work of regaining a sense of balance. So medication is often a very important part of dealing with depression. The second part is cognitive. Cognitive means undoing the thought patterns that lead to depression. You see, there's always a sort of dance between the brain chemistry and the thoughts. A person, one person may start with the brain chemistry, another person may start with the thoughts, but there's always a cycle that sort of digs itself in. For many people, they start with negative thinking. I'm a nobody, I'm a loser, I'm worthless. And that starts a pervasive blackness, and that blackness changes the brain chemistry, it changes the neurotransmitters, the serotonin, the dopamine, the adrenaline levels, and then it becomes easier for them to have these pervasive black thoughts, 
And the black thoughts continue, and the cycle between thoughts and brain chemistry begin that downward spiral. For some people, it's the opposite. Some people, strictly brain chemistry, everything's great, and then suddenly, boom, and something happens. Or, for instance, in your case, a trauma. Living through war is not normal, and it causes very real damage. So in that situation, I highly recommend you find a competent psychiatrist to recommend medication. Medication often is not forever, but often time to just regain a certain sense of balance is important. And then you have to do the difficult work, the cognitive work of retraining your thought process to think positively, not to think depressive thoughts. It's a very strange thing. We create our moods. We don't realize it, but there's a car magnet I like to quote. Anyone ever hear this car magnet that has the quote? Because the way we think becomes the way we feel, becomes who we are forever. Now, if you don't have that car magnet, go to theschmooze.com and order it. It's free. You can put it on your car. It's a schmooze magnet because that line, I think, is so descriptive because the way we think becomes the way we feel becomes who we are forever is a huge, huge concept. And again, go to theschmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. You'll see a place to order the schmooze magnet. It's free. Just put in your address, and we'll send it out to you, and you can put it on your bumper sticker. So the first arm of working on depression is the biochemical, the, the medication. Second one is the cognitive therapy, and usually it helps to have a therapist help you. And there's a third one, which has proven study after study to be equally effective to the other two, and it's something called vigorous exercise. Exercising vigorously three to four times a week has often as much effect as cognitive therapy, as does medication. The best program is to use all three. You see, it's a very strange thing. When you exercise vigorously, there's also a change in your brain chemistry. I used to run regularly. I used to work out very, very vigorously. And you could feel it. It's something called a runner's high. An hour after the workout, there's a sense of mild euphoria, just a sense of, Whoa, and you could feel the brain chemistry change. So while I recognize what you've gone through, the work has three legs to it, and you really probably should do all three. Medication oftentimes is called for, at least for a short time, at least to get you back to a point where you could do the cognitive work. You do the cognitive work usually with a therapist to realign your thinking and to get back to positive thinking. And again, exercise as a third part because, again, it's all imperative and all significant uh, to work. Okay, and I wish you much much, much luck with that. If Mashiach most probably will not come through our own merits, but through the fact that time is up, year 6,000, and, is just, and it just has to come, then what will not be in our days, maybe in a great-great-grandchildren's time? So why daven so hard if we're not going to see it? Man, is that depressing. That question I'll say in English is that, listen, Mashiach's not coming until year 6,000 anyway, so why should we even bother davening? Okay, so if I believed, as you wrote, I'd be depressed. And I I would need all three. I need the chemistry, I need the, I need the meds, I need the exercise, I need the cognitive therapy. I'd be depressed. So let me share with you something that is very, very different than what you're saying. Chazal do not view it that way at all. Chazal have a much clearer vision and much more clearly understand that Mashiach is imminent, but not imminent as in like distant, but like so easy to come. You see, Hashem wants it, we need it, and sometimes it takes just a little step. It won't be in our merit, 
but I, but a little, little tiny person, a Lilliputian, stand on the shoulders of giants, generation after generation after generation before me, starting with Avram Avinu, thousands and thousands, millions of holy Jews, I stand on their shoulders and I say to Hashem, not in my honor, not in my merit, that Hashem redeem us. But more than anything, I beg Hashem as a son begs for mercy. And the Chovos Lovavos says this very clearly. A person has to daven to Hashem with the attitude that my tefillah can bring Mashiach. And if in fact it doesn't come about, he has to know that for whatever which reason Hashem deemed it such that it shouldn't happen. But a person has to know that Mashiach is very, very close. Would you like to know how close? I'll share with you an interesting halacha. We blow shofar on Rosh Hashanah, 100 kolos. Now from the Torah, there's no obligation to blow 100 kolos. From the Torah, we should blow nine, maybe, three different sets of three, midrabanan, 30, but that's about it. 30, 40 sounds would be more than sufficient to meet all of the obligations from the biblical obligation as well as rabbinic. Yet in our davening, we have 100 kolos, 100 separate sounding of the shofar. And the Gemara explains why. To confuse the sotan. And Tosas explains what it means. You see, first we blow the obligatory shofar blast, the kia, trua, the shvarim. And then we blow it again to fulfill the rabbanan. And then after we finish those sets, we blow a whole other set of shofar. And the sotan says to himself, what are they doing? They already fulfilled the biblical obligation. They already fulfilled the rabbinic obligation. What are they blowing? Oh my goodness, it must be the sound of the shofar being blown from Mashiach coming. And the sotan becomes so, so tumult, so <clears throat> unwrought, that he can't complain against the Jewish nation. And that's why Chazal instituted a separate <clears throat> group of shofar sounding to get the sotan confused. He hears that next sounding of it, and he gets so... <clears throat> shaken that he can't complain against the Jewish nation. Okay, here's my question. How smart is the Sultan? How bright is he? Well, I'll share with you. He's far brighter than you and I, and if you don't believe me, just explain to me how you ended up on that site yesterday, the day before, the week before that, and even if it wasn't totally immorality and destroyed your Simcha Zachayim, it wasted your time. How did you end up, believe me, the Sultan is mighty smart, far brighter than you and I. Okay, here's the question. He was there in shul last Rosh Hashanah. He heard the shofar blowing 30 and then another set, and he got, oh, oh, maybe it's Mashiach. But it wasn't. So now this year, why doesn't he wise up and say, I got the trick? It's just a ploy to get me nervous. It's not Mashiach coming. You know what the answer is? Because while we don't understand it, the Sutton does. The Sutton is a malach. He's pure spirituality, and he recognizes that machine.